Right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. It's great to see you here today, and it's great to study. So today is Tuesday, June 7th, 2022, and we usually start on Monday, but of course yesterday was the holidays, so we didn't have a class yesterday, um, and instead we are going to uh, begin the Torah portion today. And we'll have some ground to make up. So we'll go. We'll try to see if we can get through at least the first two readings. If not, maybe the first three. We'll see how long kind of things go. All right. So let's jump right into the conversation. I'm going to share my screen. And let's do it. So Torah reading for Nasso. The name of the Torah portion is Nasso. And it begins with Numbers chapter 4, verse 21. We're in the middle of the census of the Levites. But it's actually the second census of the Levites because the Levites were already counted once before um, to, to ascertain, to figure out the number of Levites there were from the age of 30 days and up. That was one count. And we got 22,300. But this is another count. This is specifically of the Levites of service age, which is 30 to 50, a very narrow window between the ages of 30 and 50. And we're going through all three Levite families. Levi, the original Levite, Levi, had three sons, Gershon, Kahat, and Merari. And so we're going through each of the three families to count how many Levites there were from the ages of 30 to 50. Okay, Sarah, hey, welcome. Glad to have you here. Hey, hope you had a good holiday. The three people that... The three families, they carried the things for them. Exactly, yeah. Each one had their responsibilities. So right. Gershon carried the curtains. Kahat carried the vessels, like the menorah, the altar. And Gershon, Merari. Merari, yeah, Merari carried the beams. They carried like the, the, the heavy stuff, I would say, like the, the, the structure. So we had curtains by one family, Vessels by the other, and the structure itself, the beams, the sockets, the pillars, by the third family. But that, that was, um, yeah, so those were the three responsibilities. And we did one count from 30 days up, and now we're going from 30 years to 50 years, a, very, a much smaller segment of the Levite families. So let's jump right in to reading number one for Nasso. The Lord, oh, and at the end of last week, sorry, one more thing, the end of last week's Torah portion, we counted the family of Kahat, the ones that carried the ark and the other vessels. So we counted their people from 30 to 50, and we already got that number in. We have two more families left at the opening of this week's Torah portion. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take a census of the sons of Gershon, of them too, following their father's houses according to their families. Once again, it's going to be the same ages, from the ages of 30 years and upward until the age of 50 years. So 30 to 50, you shall count them. All who come to join the legion, to perform service in the tent of meeting. In other words, the only ones that served in actual physical service was between 30 and 50. By the way, the reason that we said, the reason that Rashi gave last week as to why 30 to 50 is because it says that 30 is when a person really gains their strength. At 50, it starts to wane. So really 20 years, at least in Judaism, is peak strength. It says, Ben Shloshim Lekoach, 30 is when you have strength, and at 50, 
that's when it starts on the decline. Not that we're not strong after 50, but it starts tipping the other way. Okay, so that's why 30 to 50. This is the service of the Gershonite families to serve and to carry. What did Gershon do? As I just mentioned, they shall carry the curtains of the Mishkan and the tent of meeting. It's covering and the tachashkin covering overlaid upon it and the screen for the entrance to the tent of meeting. So they carried all the tapestries, the hangings of the courtyard, the screen at the entrance of the gate of the courtyard, which is around the Mishkan and the altar, their ropes, all the work involved and everything that is made for them and thus shall they serve. So again, it was all of the curtains, both over the tent of meeting, that's the covered area, as well as the curtains and the coverings or the screen that served as the perimeter for the entire Mishkan. The courtyard perimeter was also made of, well, beams, which they didn't carry, and then a curtain or a tapestry or a dividing um, curtain. Not dividing curtain, a, uh, a curtain that went around. So all of those were carried by the Gershon fam- Gershonite families. All right, let's continue. Verse 27. All the service of the sons of Gershon shall be by the instruction of Aaron and his son. So they work for God, but under the instruction of the Kohanim. That's very important. The Levites, they, everyone had to work together. So the priests, the Kohanim, they were the ones that were really, you know, the, the, um, the point people. And of course, the Levite families, everyone had their role, but they were under Aaron and his sons. Um, regarding all their burden and all their service, you shall designate their entire burden as their charge. And as you, the Kohanim, are designating the entire burden as their charge, everything gets divided by the families, who does what, who does what, when, all orchestrated by the priests. This is the service of the families of the sons of Gershon in the tent of meeting and their charge, which was, once again, under the supervision of Itamar, the son of Aaron, the Kohen. So it's under one specific son of Aaron, Itamar, the youngest son of Aaron, he was the one overseeing specifically the families of Gershon and what they carried, namely the tapestries. Okay, there was a symphony of movement. Anyone who's ever seen, you know, let's say a production, like a play, you know, go up, it's backdrops, it's costumes, it's the set, the lighting, it's a whole, it's a production, right? If you've ever been involved in a production, it's a whole, it's a whole production. So it takes a lot of people doing a lot of things and you have to have people that are coordinating. So you need people that are doing the actual moving and packing and schlepping. And then you need people that are overseeing the whole operation. So those were the priests that were overseeing the operation. The Levites were the ones that actually facilitated the transportation. All right, let's go back inside. Let's look at Rashi. Here we go. So the Torah portion opens up with God telling Moses, to take a census of the sons of Gershon, two. What does two mean also? It means, God, so Rashi says, as I commanded you with regards to the children of Kahat, do the same for Gershon. Kahat was last week. So just like we counted Kahat's family from 30 to 50 years old, do the same for Gershon. Why? To see how many there are who have reached the category of those fit for service. How many people do we have to transport the curtains? Are we dealing with 10 50, 100, 1,000? What's, what, how many we got? Okay. The curtains of the Mishkan. So what did they carry? The curtains of the Mishkan, the 10 lower ones, 
the tent of meeting, those are the curtains of goat hair, made as a tent over it. The covering refers to the ram skins dyed red. As you recall from the book of Exodus, there were multiple layers of curtains on top of the, the, the Mishkan, the building of the Mishkan. The screen for the entrance, that's the screen on the east side. When you walked in, right, the Mishkan was, was like this, right? And um, the Mishkan was like this. Oh, this would be perfect, my little camera thing, but it's not. If it was like centered a little bit to the side, but centered, that would be like the Mishkan building. And you entered from this side. You entered from the east. I hope that's your east. I think that's your east, right? Yeah, that's your east. Okay. All right, back inside. Let's check it out. Um, the hangs of the the screen at the entrance of the gate of the courier, which is around the Mishkan, Rashi, which are around the Mishkan. That is to say, the hangings and the screen of the courtyard, which shelter and protect the Mishkan and the copper altar all around. That's what I was mentioning before. The, the perimeter. Perimeter was comprised of beams. And then curtains, screens that were encompassing or encircling the Mishkan. And everything that is made for them, that as the Targum understands it, everything that is given over to them, that is to the sons of Gershon. Okay, by the instruction of Aaron, the sons, which of the sons was appointed over them, specifically over the sons of Gershon? The answer is, under the supervision of Itamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. By the way, his other son, he had four sons, but two passed away. Another one of you passed away. So the two remaining surviving sons were Elazar and Itamar. Elazar oversaw the Kahat family and the vessels. We said that la- at the end of last week. They, the altars and the ark and the menorah and the showbread table, all of that was transported by the Kahat family and overseen by Elazar, Elazar, Aaron's older son. Itamar, the youngest son, oversaw the work of Gershon, the curtains, the tapestries. Okay, uh, reading number two. We're making good, good, good pace over here. Reading number two. We did two out of three families. Last week we did Kahat. We just did now Gershon. There's one more Levite family yet to be described, and that is Merari. And as for the sons of Merari, yeah, you should count them by their families. Same thing, according to their father's houses. Same deal, from the age of 30 years and upward until the age of 50 years, you shall count them. These are service, serviceable, I don't know if that's the right word, serviceable age of the Levites was 30 years old to 50 years old. Merari was being counted 30 to 50. All who come to the legion to perform service in the tent of meeting. Okay, so they were counted. What did they do? What was their role? Here we go. This is the charge of their burden for all the service in the tent of meeting. They had the heavy lifting. The planks of the Mishkan, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets. Those are all the hardware items. I call it hardware. I don't know if it's actually called hardware. But the actual beams, the planks, the poles, the pillars, the sockets, all of the Mishkan building, that's that inner building, the small building that housed the Holy and the Holy of Holies. And the pillars of the surrounding courtyard, their sockets, their pegs, and their ropes, all their implements for all, the, for all the work involved. All of that was carried, transported, disassembled, and assembled by the family of Merari. Okay. 
This is the service, verse 33. This is the service of the families of the sons of Merari for all their service and attend the meeting, which was under the supervision of, once again, Itamar, the son of Aaron the Kohen. Itamar double-dipped. Again, Aaron had two remaining, two surviving sons, Elazar and Itamar. Elazar oversaw Kahat and the vessels, and Itamar oversaw both the tapestries by Gershon and the pillars, beams, sockets of Merari. Okay. So we just read over the last little bit that the Kahat family, in, in the Levites, there were three families, Gershon Kamari. So Kahat was counted, Gershon was counted, Merari was counted. But we didn't get the results of the census. The Torah didn't tell us how many. Here we go. All we have to do is hang on because we get the numbers right here. Verse 34, Moses, Aaron, and the chieftains of the congregation counted the sons of the Kahotites. We're going back to the, to the order that we just mentioned them. First with Kahat, according to their families and their father's houses. From the age of 30 years and upward until the age of 50 years, all who come to the legion for service in the tent of meeting. How many were there? How many active service Kahatites? Here we go. Their tally, according to their families, was, drum roll, 2,750. 2,750. That is the number of working Kahat Levites in the Mishkan at that time. 2,750. Hey, Aliyah, welcome. 2,750 Levites from the family of Kahat who served in the capacity of transporting the vessels. Now, you might be thinking what I'm thinking, and that is, that's a lot of Levites. That's a lot of Kahatites. 2,750? How many do you need to move a few vessels. You got an ark. You got a. You got two altars, shobra table, menorah, a few other things. You don't need twenty seven hundred and fifty Levites. Okay, there were shifts and there were groups and they helped each other. But that is the total tally of uh, of service of, of serving kahat Levites. All right, these are the numbers of the kahatite families. All who served in the tent of meeting, who were counted by Moses and Aaron as directed by the Lord. To Moses. That closes out the Kahat census 2750. All right, let's move on. The tally of the sons of Gershon, according to their families and their fathers' houses, from the age of 30 years and upward until the age of 50 years, all who come to the legion for the serve, for service in the tent of meeting. How many Gershonites were there? Remember, the Gershonites carried, as we said earlier today, the curtains and the screens and the tapestries. How many did we have? In that capacity, their total, according to their families and their father's houses, was 2,630. 2,630. So, Kahat, 2,750. Gershon, 2,630. 120 less. Okay, that was the number. 2,630. These are the numbers of the families of the sons of Gershon, all who served in the tent of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron counted as directed by the Lord. That closes out Gershon. One family left. Let's get the results of the census. The tally of the families of the sons of Merari, according to their families and their father's houses. Remember, Merari carried the beams, sockets, pillars, the heavy stuff. From the age of 30 years and upward until the age of 50 years, all who come to the legion for work in the tent of meeting, how many were there? Their tally according to their families? 
3,200. This was the largest group of Levites. Remember, Kahat, from 30 to 50 years old, Kahat had 2,750 active serving members. Gershon had 2,630. Emirari, 3,200. I guess you needed more to lift all those heavy items. So 3,200 Levites from the family of Merari. These are the numbers of the families of the sons of Merari, whom Moses and Aaron counted as directed by the Lord to Moses. All the number, we're going to do a grand total now, 2,750 plus 2,630 plus 3,200. We're going to get the number in a second. All the numbers whom by Moses, Aaron, and the chieftains of Israel counted the Levites according to their families and their fathers' houses, from the age of 30 years and upward until the age of 50 years, who are fit to perform the service for the, for the service and the work of carrying in the tent of meeting. What's the total tally? Gersh, Kahat, Gershom plus Merari? Their tally, 8,580. 8,580, and indeed, I'm pulling up a calculator. If we do 2,750 plus... 2630 plus 3200, that equals exactly 8,580. That was the grand total of Levites that were eligible to serve at that time because they were aged 30 to 50 and they were of serving age. As, of course, they were counted as directed by the Lord, they were appointed by Moses, each man, sorry, as directed by the Lord, they were appointed by Moses each man to his service and his burden. Interesting word, his burden. They had to carry things. It was literally a burden. They were counted as the Lord had commanded Moses. Everything was done according to the orders, the marching orders. Let's look at Rashi. All right, pegs and ropes. Pegs and ropes of Merari. What does that mean? Pegs and ropes means of the pillars, the outer courtyard pillars. Since the pegs and ropes of the hangings, that means the, the screens that's that at the entrance of the tent of meeting of the of the of the tent of meeting, they were already included in the burden assigned to the sons of Gershon. They were peg there were pegs and ropes for the bottoms of the curtains and the hangings so that the wind should not lift them up. There were pegs and ropes for the pillars all around from which to hang the hangings from their upper edge with poles and rods as taught in the Brita Melechet HaMishkan. Okay, so there's different pole, pegs and ropes for different purposes. Some were carried by Gershon, some by Merari. By the way, as you see, not much, not much Rashi here. It's very straightforward. It's a census, families that we know, and that's it. Okay, there is some Rashi toward the end. Uh, to perform the service for the service. What does it mean that the Levites were appointed to perform the service for the service? It's a weird turn of phrase. They should have been fit to perform the service. What does it mean, the service for the service? Rashi. This refers to the music with cymbals and harps, which is a service for another service, i.e. the sacrifices. In other words, the Levites participated in a service, but they also participated in the service that was for the service. And that refers to the musical accompaniment. The Levites accompanied the sacrificial service 
with music. And that was a service for the service. That's how that works. A service for the service. And they were also involved in the work of carrying, as the phrase means literally the service of carrying. So here's what I like to say about this. There's two services here. There's carrying and there's music. I'm just going to paraphrase. There's singing and schlepping. You with me on this? The Levites did two things. They sang and they schlepped. Remember that song? I forget which uh, fairy tale or Disney thing is from. Whistle while we work. Who remembers that? Is that from the seven? Yes, Snow White. Snow White, Snow White. There you go, Snow White. Whistle while we work. And that is the motto of the Levites. As Rashi just told us, they did two things. They sang. Okay, I know it says cymbals and harps, but music. And they, they, they carried. So in life, uh, again, I'm going to share a non-literal idea that hopefully resonates. In life, we all have to schlep sometimes. Life can sometimes feel like a schlep. Physically, there's a burden that we have to carry, whether it means actually carrying things or it means just the day-to-day tasks and the unexpected tasks that fall our way. The question is simply this. Are we going to, shall we say, fetch, which is natural and understandable. Don't worry, it's fine. Or perhaps will we sing? That's what a Levite did. The Levite didn't just schlep, but they also sang. And so what I would suggest is to marry the two together, to whistle while we work, to sing a happy tune even as we, as we uh, encounter our burden. It's not easy, but I'll tell you this, it sure beats the alternative. It makes the work that much, uh, that much manageable. So sing a happy tune, play some music, right? Do a little dance, whatever it takes to get us uh, moving through our day with a little bit more grace and ease. Look, life is not easy, but if we can, if we can um, inspire ourselves with music or otherwise, it definitely makes the, uh, the burden easier. Okay, back inside. But it's kind of cool how the Levites did both. They sang and they slept. Um, they were commanded, last Rashi on this reading, they were commanded as the Lord had commanded Moses. Those that were counted were as commanded from the age of 30 years until the age of 50 years. In other words, they only counted the eligible Levites for service 30 to 50 as God had told them. Okay, all that should be clear. All right, so we did reading one and two, but today is Tuesday, which is the third day of the week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, which means really we should study all the way through reading three, and we have time, so let's do it. Okay, let's jump into reading number three. Okay, let's talk about evictions. Who gets sent out of the camp? Now that we know the number of people that are in the camp, both Israelites, i.e. non-Kohanim or Levim, and Levites, Levim, so now let's talk about the inner dynamics of the encampment. The Lord, chapter 5 of Numbers, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, by the way, it's fair to say, just as an aside, that the first four chapters of Numbers speak about Numbers. Like, quite literally. It's all about the census. It's all, all, it's all in on that, on the Numbers. Okay, chapter 5, God told Moses the following. 
command the children of Israel to banish from the camp all those afflicted with sarat or a male discharge. Now, both of these topics, I'm, I'm jumping in for a second. Both of these topics we, we learned together in the book of Leviticus, one book ago. We had Torah portions on sarat. We had a section in the Torah on the laws of Zav, which means uh, when there's an, uh, we translation we gave it was, I think, an unhealthy male venereal discharge. I think that was the, the, um, uh, the translation, as it were, that we gave for that. So in that case, um, one was impure until they were purified. You had to wait a number of days and then do a specific ritual to get purified. But until that point, one was to be banished from the camp. So God says to Moses, tell the people to make sure to send out all those who need to be sent out, including those afflicted with sarat or with a male discharge. And all those unclean through contact with the dead, they too are to be sent outside the camp. By the way, this is not time out. It's not a punishment. It's just a reality. The camp was meant to, to be a, a, a relatively, call it holy, but a relatively... Uh, spiritually purified place, anyone who was uh, w- was in the state of spiritual impurity on these levels w- was to be sent out of the camp. Both male and female you shall banish, you shall send them outside the camp, and they shall not defile their camps. It's a strong word in English, but it means you know render it impure, in which I dwell among them. God is basically saying, I'm not only, this is very important, God is basically saying, I'm not just hanging out Sorry, I didn't mean to do Rashi. I meant to stop sharing for a second. I'm not only hanging out, says God, in the, in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle. I'm also hanging out amongst the encampment. So someone who's in a state of ritual impurity, at least on a severe state of ritual impurity, make sure to send out of the camp until they're ready to be brought back in. Okay, back inside. The children of Israel did so. They sent them, whoever needed to be, outside the camp. As the Lord had spoken to Moses, so did the children of Israel do. It's a little redundant. So did the children of Israel do. All right, they did what they were told. Okay, let's pause here and let's do some Rashi's. Rashi. Okay, this section... Command the children of Israel regarding ritual impurity. This, this section, says Rashi, was set on the day the Mishkan was erected. Going back a little bit. And eight section was, sections of law were set on that day, as it is stated in Trate Gittin in the chapter titled Hanizakin. The Talmud describes there at length in Trate Gittin um, the exact order of events or order of commands that took place, this command took place prior. We have a rule in Torah that Torah is not necessarily written in chronological order, which is why we have this section regarding impurity here, even though it really was told to Moses and the Jewish people a little while back, for whatever reason, it's plopped over here. Now, obviously, you're probably wondering, What's the, there's got to be a reason. There's got to be a significant... If, if it's moved out of order, chronological order, there's got to be a reason. The answer is yes, there is a reason. What that reason is, we would have to look up the commentaries. Um, I, don't, I don't know it offhand, but the point is 
Ein muktam umu'ukhar Torah. Torah is not necessarily stated and penned and related in, in chronological order. Sometimes you'll find things that are um, from a different, a bit of a different time period. This is from an earlier, slightly earlier time period. I believe that this entire section was stated in month two, which is ER. In other words, the census happened in ER, one year after the Exodus, a year and a month. And this commandment to banish the impure was Nisan, one month prior. It's a month off. All right, to banish from the camp. At the time of their encampment, there were three camps. So Rashi breaks it down for us. When they were dwelling in the desert, they were all living in a specific uh, um, coordinated encampment plan. There were three camps. So within the hang, and Rashi breaks it down, within the hangs of the courtyard of the Mishkan was the camp of the Shechina. So the Mishkan itself is called, I'm going to say the words in Hebrew, Machana Shechina, the camp of the Shechina, which is God's presence. It was the holy camp, God's camp, so to speak. Then the encampment, that was one, the innermost encampment. Then the encampment of the Levites surrounded it, as described in the portion of Ibn Barsinai last week. That was the Levite camp, Machana Leviya. So we had Machana Shechina, the divine presence was the innermost camp. Around it was the Levite camp. Let's continue. From there until the edge of the camp of the divisions on all four sides was the Israelite camp. Machana Yisrael. The Israelite camp was the outermost camp. Listen to this. Anyone afflicted with Surat, we know Surat is that biblical form of quasi-leprosy. Anyone afflicted with Surat was expelled from all three camps. One with a discharge, uh, the unhealthy venereal discharge, was allowed into the Israelite camp, interesting, but banned from the other two. Not everyone was sent all the way out of all the camps. The Tzarat person, the person with Tzarat, was sent outside all three camps, even the Israelite camp. The Zav, the one with the unhealthy venereal discharge, he was sent out of... The inner two camps, he could not go to the Mishkan. He could not hang out with his buddy Levite friends. He had to be outside those two inner camps. He could only be in the third camp. And one defiled by a dead body was permitted even into the Levite camp. That's camp number two. And is banished only from the camp of the Shechina. Our sages derived all this from the verses as told in Tractate Pesachim 67a and b. So again, the Talmud delves into, that's one of the major things the Talmud does, is really breaks down the verses and understands exactly what's being stated. So based on all of the verses, the Talmud derives that the, although the three categories are, the three categories of impurity are lumped together in the same verse, they actually have three different statuses. So someone with Sarat had to leave all three camps. Someone that was a Zav, the discharge guy, was banished outside the two inner camps, could be in the third camp. The one who come, came in contact with the dead body was only banished from the innermost camp, the Mishkan, could hang out with the Levites and could hang out with the Israelites. But to get back into the Mishkan, the tabernacle, they would have to undergo the process of purification. Back inside to Morashi. Um, individuals who are unclean 
with the dead, contact with the dead, um, human bones. Okay. Let's continue inside. All right, we did the Rashis that are relevant. I mean, all Rashis are relevant, but the Rashis that gave a bit of a twist we did. Let's continue. The Lord then spoke to Moses saying, Tell the children of Israel, when a man or woman commits any of the sins against man to act treacherously against God. So already it's a complicated situation. It's a sin against man, against a fellow human being, but it's acting treacherously against God. We'll see Rashi on this, what exactly the person is doing. So if the person does that type of sin, they acted against man and treacherously against God, and that person is found guilty. So what's, what's the outcome? What's the next step? They shall confess the sin they committed and make restitution for the principal amount of his guilt, add its fifth to it, and give it to the one against whom he was guilty. In these cases, there's a financial penalty of the principal plus an additional fifth as a fine, and all of that is paid to the victim of the crime. But if the man has no kinsman to whom to make restitution, the debt which is restored to the Lord is to be given to the Kohen. Let's say the person is gone and there are no relatives and you want to make restitution, you want to do tshuva. What do you, want to, what do, you do? So you have to give the money to Hashem. How do you give the money to God? You wire, you wire it to God LLC, God Inc. What do you do? No, you give it to the Kohen. This is besides the atonement ram through which expiation is made for him. The person who acted treacherously against man and God has to bring a sacrifice, uh, an atonement ram, um, known as the Ale Hakipurim. No, that's not a Yom Kippur beer, although that would be a very cool name, Ale Hakipurim. Someone should get on that. Um, no, that's not a, uh, it's not a beverage. It is the ram, Ale means a ram, of Kippurim, of atonement. So this person needs to bring an atonement ram, but also has to pony up the cash plus an additional fifth and pay it to the guilty party or their heirs or the Kohen. Every offering. Okay, so that's that's that. Let's deal with a few more laws. Then we're going to go to Rashi. New topic-ish, new-ish topic. Every offering of all the children of Israel's holy things which is brought to the Kohen shall be his. The simple meaning is when you give it to the Kohen, it belongs to the Kohen. Everyone's holy things shall belong to him. Whatever a man gives to the Kohen shall be his. What does that mean? It means, according to the commentaries, you can choose which Kohen you give it to. If you have to give it to a Kohen, which Kohen? You choose. You choose your favorite Kohen. It, uh, it's not a lottery. It's, it's by choice. It's his. In other words, um, everyone's holy things shall belong to him, meaning you have the discretion which Kohen to give it to. I hope that makes sense. Let's do Rashi's. And uh, then we'll close out today's study. Okay, what does it mean to sin against man and act treacherously against God? Rashi, scripture repeats the section dealing with a thief who swears falsely. That's the case. Someone who stole money and then lied about it and swore falsely about it and then got busted. Simple scenario, simple scenario. Ruvain and Shimon. Ruvain steals $100 from Shimon. Shimon says, you stole my money. Ruvain says, I don't know what you're talking about. Shimon takes him to court. Ruvain 
promises. He swears, I did not touch this man's money. At a later point in time, he's found guilty. What's the penalty? The original amount plus an additional fifth. Okay, payable to the victim. Um, so the sin against man is the theft. The act of treachery against God is lying about it under oath. You with me? The sin against man is the theft, the initial theft. The treachery against God is the denial under oath. So um, the Torah says over there in Vayikra Leviticus and acts treacherous against God by falsely denying to his fellow, etc. It is repeated here, so we already learned that in Leviticus. Why is it here? Again, in Numbers. It is repeated here because two new matters are introduced. So when Torah repeats something, it's always because there's another wrinkle being added. The first is that it is written, they shall confess, which teaches us that the thief is not required to pay a fifth and bring a guilt offering when incriminated by two witnesses unless, sorry, until he admits to the deed himself and the second matter, oh, so that's one thing. So even if he's contradicted in court by two witnesses saying, oh, we saw you steal, he has to admit to it, and then he's guilty um, for this punishment. And the second matter is that what is stolen from a proselyte must be given to the Kohanim. In other words, if the proselyte has no heirs, etc., then it's given to the Kohen, as we read inside. They shall confess the sin they committed, Make restitution for the principal amount. Rashi says, this is the principal amount on which he has sworn falsely. In other words, you stole $100. I didn't steal $100. Okay, so number one, if you're lying, not you, if Reuven's lying, he's got to pay $100. And he pays an extra fifth to the one against whom he was guilty, the one to whom he is liable. I.e., if the payee owes this amount to a third party, the thief must pay the third party. Interesting. Very interesting. Let's say, uh, it's a little bit, it's not complicated, it's a little bit non-intuitive, non but it's an interesting case. So let's say, again, same scenario, Ruvain sells from Shimon, $100, but let's say that wasn't Shimon's money. Whoops. Whoops. That was Levy's money. You see, Levi had lent Shimon money, and then Reuven stole it from his pocket. Mind blown. So whose money is it, really? It's Levi's money. Shimon had it in his pocket. Reuven stole it. So Reuven has to pay back the money and an additional fifth. To who? Who gets the profit? The victim or the victim? The one whose pocket was stolen out of or the one whose money it really was? Shimon or Levi? Rashi explains, based on the Talmud, that you pay back the additional fifth to Levi, the one who had the money initially. So you give $100, I mean, it doesn't really matter, you give the $100 to, to Shimon, he has to give it back to Levi, but the additional fifth, who gets to keep the extra money? The fine, as it were. The answer is Levi, the third party. Okay, let's go back inside. That's what Rashi just said, I'll just show it to you back inside. Um, he gives the extra fifth, to the one who to who to the one against whom he was guilty to the well, I can't speak the one to whom he is liable if the payee owes the amount to the third party the thief must pay the third party that is Levy in my scenario 
But if the man has no kinsman, for the claimant who made him swear has died and left no heirs. Whoops. The victim passed away now. By the time you busted this guy, the victim is gone and there's no heirs. So who do you pay? Um, oh, Rashi asked the question, how is it possible that a Jew should have no heirs? Got to be somebody, right? Got to be somebody, either a son, a daughter, a brother, or some other relative from his father's family all the way back to our father Jacob. I mean, if you think about it, it's like all the way... So the explanation is rather it's referring to a proselyte who died leaving no heirs. Someone who converts to Judaism that when it comes to conversion, very interesting wrinkle in the law. Oh, here we go. It says it right here. Since in the brackets, I was about to tell us to uh, uh, paraphrase, but it's right here. Since a proselyte is judged as a newborn without relationship to those born prior to his or her conversion. Very interesting law in halacha. And that says, that goes like this. Somebody who converts to Judaism is like katan hanoled, is like a, a, a newborn who's born, which means that any family relationship, I mean, obviously, family is still family, but legally, halachically, that relationship, that it's legally, it's not family. I mean, of course, legally, it is family, but I mean, halachically, because the person that converted to Judaism has taken on essentially a new identity. So the previous relatives or the relatives um, would have a slightly different status and therefore not exactly that type of relative. So obviously the, the parents that brought that person into the world are still those individuals, but technically after conversion, the person that converted has a brand new status and a clean slate, almost like a clean slate vis-a-vis relatives. So imagine that 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 person, the person who converted, was the victim of theft. And now they passed away and they have no legal heirs, at least according to halacha, there's no legal heirs. So what do you do with the money when the guy comes clean or when the guy's busted, the thief is busted? So who do you pay it to? You pay it to the Kohen. That's the case, as Rashi says, that's the case that the Torah is referring to. All right, the debt which is restored, the debt refers to the principal, and which is restored refers to the fifth, which is the fine. That's given to the Kohen, Rashi says, oh, so to the Lord, to the Kohen, what does that mean? God assumes ownership and gives it over to the Kohen on duty in that watch. So really it's to God, but God says, all right, the Kohen can have it. And that's aside from the atonement ram, as we mentioned in Parashat Vayikra, which he is required to bring. Okay, every offering, this was a bit of a new law, every offering of all the children of Israel's holy things which they brought to the Kohen shall be his. What does that mean? Every offering, Rabbi Shmuel said, is the truma brought to the Kohen. Does he not go around to the granary seeking it? So what does the clause brought to the Kohen mean? The Kohen goes to them, not they to him. So this refers to not truma, but to the first fruits, of which it says, as it stated, you shall bring it to the house of the Lord your God. But I do not know what to do with them. Therefore, Scripture states that the Kohen shall be his. Scripture teaches us regarding the first fruits, the Bikurim, that they are to be given to the Kohen. You bring that to the Kohen. All right, here we go. Um, a man's holy things belong to him. What does that mean, Rashi? And this is what I was telling you outside before. Since the Kohen and Levite's gifts are explicitly stated, 
one might think that they can come and appropriate them forcefully. Oh, hey, I see it looks like you have uh, some truma and some miser. I'm going to grab that from you. You can't do that. Therefore, Scripture states, everyone's holy things belong to him, which informs us that their benefit to give them to whichever coin it pleases him belongs to the owner. That's what I was mentioning before. The, it's the farmer who has the right to choose which coin he's going to give it to. Any random coin cannot show up at the farmer's field and say, give me my stuff. That's not how it works. The, the, the owner, the farmer has the right to choose. You can't, if you're a coin or labor, you can't demand it. They have the right to choose who to give it to. All right, let's continue. That's the simple meaning. An agadic interpretation, this is more of like a conceptual, moral, spiritual teaching. Everyone's holy things belongs to him mean, belong to him means that if one withholds his tithes, let's say somebody doesn't give miser and does not give them to the Kohen or Levite, those tithes shall be his. I'll say that again. Somebody violates Torah law and does not give the tithe, then those tithes are his. You want to keep the 10%? Sure. But then that 10% is going to be your only profit. In other words, a person made, I guess, I guess this is with crops. I mean, I, I'm, I'm like, I was about to give a money example. But let's say crops. You had a thousand, I don't know. A thousand units of produce that came up. So out of a thousand, you're supposed to give a hundred. Let's say you let's say the, the farmer didn't. No, I'm keeping it all for myself. I'm not gonna give. God says, You want to keep it for yourself? Then that's all you're gonna get next year. Next year you're gonna get a hundred and not a thousand. You want temp, you want the ten percent? Good fine. Okay, but then that, then you're only gonna get ten percent. That's kind of like the consequence. Right? So if one with I'm gonna read it again, if one withholds his ties and does not give them to the Kohen or Levite, then those ties shall be his, for eventually his field will produce only a tenth of its usual yield. Then it will stop producing a thousand, it's going to only produce a hundred. Okay? Whatever a man gives to the Kohen, the gifts to which he's entitled, shall be his, he shall have much wealth. I guess if you give... Like if, you don't, if one doesn't give, then they'll end up not having. If one does give, then they will end up having great wealth. All right, we end with a blessing of wealth and uh, prosperity. And of course, this blessing in Torah comes from doing the right thing. In this context, giving the proper, the requisite gifts to the Kohen and to the Levi. So in summation, we did a lot today. We did three readings we covered a lot of verses. I mean, fairly straightforward. We talked about the census. We finished up the census of the Levites of serviceable age from 30 years old to 50 years old. We did the Gershon family, the Gershonite family, and the Merarite families. We did the total tally, which was 800. Sorry, I think it was 8,580. I think that was the total. 8,580 Levites. Some served in the capacity of carrying the vessels, some carried the curtains, and some carried the beams and sockets. Each one had their role. Here's a message in life. In life, everyone has a role. No one does it all. Everyone has a specific role. Everyone has their talent and their calling. How do we find out? One strategy for finding out, for honing in on your purpose in life, 
is what's called POP, P-O-P-P, place, opportunity, people, and personality. Analyze your POP and you might analyze, you might very well arrive at your specific individualized purpose in life. If you think about the place where you find yourself, the unique place that you're in, think about your unique opportunities, where you are in life right now, the context that you're in life, think of your opportunities. Think of the people that are around you and think of your personality and that is how you can hone in on your mission. But the point here is, the reason why I'm connecting with that idea with this Torah portion is because Kahat, that family, had their purpose. They were all in on the vessels. Gershon had their purpose. Merari had their purpose. The, the, the Torah doesn't say, you know, one day, mix it up. Kahat will carry the curtains and Merari will carry the, 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 the vessels. Everyone has their, their strength and their destiny. So that's one message to extract from the counting of the Levites. Another message that we can learn is the notion, as I mentioned before, of singing while we schlep. Life, sometimes life goes easy. Sometimes we're automatically singing a happy tune. But often we find ourselves just, you know, shoulder, um, heads down, shoulder to the task, whatever the right uh, line or cliche is. We find ourselves, you know, very much under the burden of the work that we're doing, whatever that work is. The Torah reminds us, look at the Levites. The Levites had two jobs. They schlepped and they sang. Let's combine the two. Let's sing while we schlep. If we sing while we schlep, it makes the schlepping much easier. But why should we sing while we schlep? So for this, I'll conclude with one final story. They tell, I've told this many times before, but it's appropriate here. They tell a story of a father and a son who are walking down a mountain. And as they're walking down the mountain, they see somebody climbing up the mountain with a very heavy sack over his shoulder. And this guy is ecking and becking and groaning and moaning. Oi, vowed, oi, every step he takes, he's oi, oi. The boy, the little boy turns to the man and says, what are you carrying? What's in the sack? He says, oi, carrying coal up the mountain every day. I have to carry coal. It's such a pain, but it's my, but it's my job. I got to do it. Oh, he's kvetching. He says, okay, have a good day. I hope it gets easier for you. you. Keep on walking down the mountain. There's another guy walking up the mountain with a big, heavy load on his shoulder, a big, heavy sack. But this guy is not moaning and groaning. This guy is laughing and skipping and running, alighting, as it were, up the mountain. And the young boy says to him, whoa, hey, wait a second. What are you carrying? He says, I'm carrying a bag full of diamonds. I just encountered a treasure at the bottom of the mountain and I'm taking the treasure up to my family and friends. And so he's running with the treasure up the mountain. Which reminds us that in life, it's not about the weight of the burden. It's the meaning of the burden. You can be carrying a very heavy burden, but it's diamonds. And if you know it's diamonds, it's not going to feel heavy at all. You'll be excited. You won't, feel, you won't feel upset about it. You can be carrying a much lighter load, but you don't want to, and it can feel like absolute torture. So in life, what does it mean to whistle while we work? What does it mean to sing while we schlep? If we see the challenges of life as being ordained by Hashem, by God Almighty, to make us stronger, 
or to help us achieve our purpose, to help us achieve the world's purpose, that can make the schlepping that much easier. Because we know we're not just randomly dealing with challenges. We're dealing with challenges that are really opportunities for ourselves, our neighborhoods, and our world. And with this, the schlepping becomes that much easier. So let's be like a Levite. Let's sing while we work. Let's sing while we schlep, recognizing that the burden that we have, the work that we do, is all part of a master plan, is all part of making this world a home for Hashem and bringing heaven down to earth. Thank you for joining me today for Daily Power Parsha. Hope this was meaningful. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, any questions or comments before we close out? Checking it. I saw. Yeah. I saw. I saw once. It was like a, a. It was almost like we were walking through a video game through the temple. Oh, nice. And yeah, and so the stairs going up is where I think the Levites were placed with their, with their. Is that is that correct? Is that, that is correct. Yeah. In okay. fact, there were fifteen steps. Very interesting. There were fifteen steps, at least in the temple. In the Mishkan, it's interesting. In the tabernacle, that we're talking about here, they didn't really have steps. Everything was portable. You know, they were just, they were moving things in place and whatever. But in the temple, what you saw was likely the temple, they had 15 steps up, which is, which corresponds to the 15 Psalms in the book of Psalms, beginning with chapter 120 and ending with 134. There's 15 Psalms in a row that begin Shir Hamailos, a song of ascents. Like ascent, um, a s c e n t, like a a song of climbing, a song of ascent, and those fifteen um, songs were sung by the Levites on those fifteen steps of the uh, going up to the to the temple building. So yeah, absolutely, that's where the Levites played their instruments and they sang. There was vocal and instrumental. Yeah, that is correct. Okay, good. So what's the what's the point? We got to sing. And as we sing, we climb higher and higher and higher. You know, music also is created by, um, is compo- um, I'm, not a, I'm not an expert in musical structure, but I know there's parts of, this, of music is the idea of, you know, elevation. Things go up, things soar, they come down also, but the idea of climbing in a, uh, in a tune. All right. Questions, comments? Okay. All right. Great to see you all. Tomorrow we're back on. Not back on. Tomorrow we're on as well. Same bad time, same bad channel. Wednesday at noon. Tonight, don't forget, for those taking the JLI course Beyond Right. I'm looking for my book. I got it right here. We are back. We are on tonight, 8 p.m. Uh, looking forward to seeing you tonight. Tonight's class is fantastic. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Is that a thing in Judaism? Is that not a thing? What is the spiritual psychology of ownership? All of that coming up tonight in our Beyond Right class. Okay, looking forward to seeing you then and tomorrow. All right, take care, everybody. Have a great day. We'll see you soon. Thank you, Rabbi. Pleasure, pleasure. Take care. Take care.